it's one thing to choose dopamine instead of here and now because it gives you pleasure, but it can very easily get to the point where you're no longer in control. Dopamine is controlling you. And a good example of that is doom scrolling. So how do we use dopamine for focus, motivation, creativity, and avoiding unhealthy addictions? I think that we will get the most out of dopamine. Like, Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Whether you're searching for a home to buy or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent, all in the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. They know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Okay, quick math. The less your business depends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep, obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite, and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash greatness. netsuite.com slash greatness. Again, head to netsuite.com slash greatness. We got Daniel Z. Lieberman in the house. You've got an amazing book called The Molecule of More, how a single chemical in your brain drives love, sex, and creativity and will determine the fate of the human race. Um, you're a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at George Washington University. And you've done a lot of work in this space of psychiatry uh, and also with the U.S. Department of Commerce, the Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy, and you work with your expertise on the neurobiological basis of human behavior. And uh, you're a researcher, you're a practitioner, you're a teacher, uh, and you're an author. And so I'm excited to dive into this. Andrew Huberman recommended your work, so I'm glad you're here. And... The whole thing is about dopamine, what I'm hearing you say, and the unconscious mind and dopamine. Is that a lot of the work that you're, you're dealing with? Yeah, you know, the unconscious mind is what I'm working on for my next book. Uh, dopamine is about the molecule of more. Uh -huh. I'm fascinated in both of them. So what do we need to know about dopamine? How does it help us? How does it hurt us? Most people, when they think about dopamine, they think about pleasure. Uh -huh. But that's just a small piece of what dopamine does. 
the bigger picture is, is that it's used to maximize future resources. That's why we called the book The Molecule of More. Mm -hmm. Dopamine is all about making the future better than the present. And so it can do wonderful things. It can give us energy, motivation, desire, excitement, confidence, but it can also do terrible things. It can make us dissatisfied, unhappy, miserable, constantly chasing something we can never capture. Mm. It's a powerful tool. We gotta learn how to use it properly. What are the most powerful examples of dopamine in a healthy way and then powerful in an unhealthy way that you see in the world happening? Right. So, you know, I, I tend to think of entrepreneurs uh -huh. in terms of healthy dopamine. They want to build something that never existed before. Uh -huh. And you know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Uh, I tried once and I couldn't do it. <laughs> it's hard, man. <laughs> it's very hard. It's hard. Yeah. You've got um, to go, 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 go. Uh -huh. You've got to be driven by passion. You have to work 10 times as much as if you're working a regular job. But dopamine makes it fun. Yes. And that's one of the beautiful things about dopamine is it can make, um, it can just make us feel so alive yeah. as we work to make the future better than the present. So dopamine is about, it's about seeing something and having an idea in your mind that's not here in the real world. I think in right, your TED talk, right. you talk about uh, there's two different spaces in the world. The space that we're looking down that we can touch and grab and then an external uh, a space out there. What are those two spaces called? Like a... Yeah, so when we think about how uh, dopamine evolved, we've got the peripersonal space, and that's basically the space in arm's reach. So anything within my reach, um, my energetic field of where my arms go to is called the para-what? Peripersonal. Peripersonal. Yeah, peri means okay. around. Okay, cool. Right, so and it's around is, you. And what is that space? What does that mean for us? That's um, anything in the peripersonal space is stuff that you own. Yes. You've got control over. And you interact with it in the present. Um, so this pen, this notebook, your book, this coffee cup, this iPad, this table, mm -hmm. this chair, these clothes that I'm wearing, that's in my personal space. Yep, exactly. And um, the way you interact with it is consumatory. That, that means consume. You know, I can take a drink from this glass of water. Uh -huh. But it also refers to consummation. Uh, what happens at the end when the thing that you've worked for you now have. That's the consummation. Okay. And that's also related to the peripersonal space, stuff you have now. Okay. So that's, how does dopamine play into the peripersonal space? When you are interacting with things in the peripersonal space, dopamine shuts off. Really? Even yeah. your phone? The, the atoms and molecules may be in the peripersonal space but your head is far away when you're interacting with your phone. Because it's in a different, it's not actually in front of you, it's in a different space. It's in a different space. The content you're consuming, it might be on the phone, yes. but it's somewhere else. It's somewhere else. You're usually focused on possibilities when you're in your phone. You're, you're reading social media, you're reading the news, uh -huh. you're thinking yeah. about, how is this going to affect me? We're thinking about the future. Interesting, okay, and so what's the other space? The other space is the extra-personal space, outside the personal space. Okay. That's stuff that's not within arm's reach. And it could be um, an apple across the room on a table, or it could be the moon. Uh, whatever it is, you don't have it. And if you want it, you're going to have to work for it, and your interaction with it is going to take place in the future. Right, so if there's an apple you know, across the room, it's an easier effort to stand up go grab the apple and eat it than it is if it was right in front of you.
but it's much harder to get to the moon. Right. But even that apple is going to require some effort, uh-huh. uh, maybe even some planning, and uh, it's happening in the future. It's right. not happening right it's now. It's not in this moment. I can't just grab it and chew it. Yeah. yeah. I have to get up. And there's sometimes where I'm on the you know, couch watching sports and I see something in the kitchen. I'm like, <laughs> I really want that, but it's really comfortable right now and I don't want to get up. And so you have to have some effort sometimes to go across the room. You do. You do. <laughs> But, you know, it's funny, sometimes things that we don't have but we want give us more joy than the things we have. Why um, is that? The things we desire. Yeah. There's a great quotation um, from the book, The House at Pooh Corner. Did you okay. ever read that? Winnie the Pooh? Yeah. yeah, Winnie yeah the, of course. I love yeah, children's yeah. literature. Yeah, yeah, so good. Yeah. So anyways, Christopher Robin asked Pooh, what, what is it that you like the best in all the world? And of course, the first thing Winnie the Pooh thinks about is honey. And he's about to say eating honey. But then he thinks, this is an amazingly sophisticated thing for a children's book. Then he thinks there's a moment before you start to eat honey that's even better, but he didn't know what it was called. It's called dopamine. That's dopamine. That's dopamine. It's the anticipation of about to get a reward. And somehow, right, you go into a great restaurant for dinner and you're excited about it. You're thinking about it all day long. You're there, you're chewing the food and your brain's somewhere else. Really? Or maybe there's a few moments of like, oh, this is amazing, and but then after those first few bites, you're on to the next. Right. Gosh, so is, is that a healthy thing for us to do, to think about the future consistently, but then not appreciate the moment of what we're enjoying that we've been desiring all day or years of a dream that we've been trying to create? Right, no, it's not healthy at all. So it's what? not healthy at all. And you know, one of the things we say is that the guy who is most able to afford the beach house is the least able to enjoy it. Gosh, why is that? he goes out to his beautiful beach house, he pulls out his laptop and he's working, uh, right? He can't just sit there and smell the breeze and, and right? Why is that? Uh, it's because the guy who can afford to the beach house was born with a pretty powerful dopamine system and he, um, it's hard for him to turn it off. Because he was driven and driven and driven and that's what allowed him to get the resources that he never had in order to buy the beach house. Right, yeah, and then it, now he's got the beach house, he can't turn it off and enjoy the beach house. He's thinking about what's next, the, the next deal he's gonna do, the trip to Europe, who knows what. How can someone be so hungry to reach a vision and create more in a healthy place, but also be satisfied with where they're at? It's hard, it's hard. You know, the first question is, do they want to, right? Like, do they want to be satisfied or be do, happy? Yeah, I mean, you've heard the saying, um, to travel hopefully is better than to arrive. Uh-huh. Have you heard that? Sure. Yeah, uh, that's a dopamine saying, of course, Okay. right? It's better to anticipate than to have. And some people don't wanna make that shift, you know? To them, the peripersonal, the here and now, it feels all touchy-feely and, uh-huh. and, and it makes them uncomfortable and they don't like it. They wanna spend their life in the future. I don't think that's healthy, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna judge them. I'm not gonna choose for them. Sure. So the first thing is they have to decide whether that's something that they want. Mm. But where does uh, dopamine, how, how does dopamine really get you addicted to things like drugs, social media, alcohol, or just bad habits? Yeah, so it's one thing to choose dopamine instead of here and now because it gives you pleasure. That's a choice. But it can very easily get to the point where you're no longer in control. You're no longer making choices. Dopamine is controlling you. 
and, and a good example of that is doom scrolling, right? You're going through your social media, you're bored, you're maybe even unhappy, but you can't stop scrolling. Mm. Because what dopamine is saying is one more scroll and there might be something that will change your future and you can't miss that. And, and, and so that's an example. Another example is, is compulsive eating, for example, right? We're no longer enjoying that third donut but something is making us eat it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I just want more, more, more. I feel sick. Every bite makes me feel worse. Why do I keep biting this? Is that it's, dopamine? It's dopamine, yeah. So the dopamine is, is telling us what? That we're not happy with what we have, we still need more of that thing. Yeah. yeah. Whether it be social media, I'm not happy with 10 minutes of scrolling, I need 30 minutes, I need 50 minutes, I need, because something is gonna, I'm gonna feel something that I don't have in this moment. Is that what it's saying? You know, I like to think of it evolutionarily. Uh, human beings evolved on the brink of starvation, mm -hmm. right? We were always in a situation where we did not have enough resources and we could be dead tomorrow. Um, and, and that's where dopamine evolved. And so dopamine is basically keep your eye on the ball. Look, that third donut is making you sick. You might not have calories for the next three days. Get it inside you and you'll be alive. Wow. So and, is this genetics then? It's genetics, yeah. Really? Yeah. So how do we turn the gene off in our favor to not suffer? That's what we get into in, in the later parts. And you know, we Western civilization is very much of a dopamine civilization of more, more, more. And uh, I think in order to choose balance in one's life, you, you've got to make an effort not to do that. Um, in, in the past, we did more of that. One of the ways you get in the here and now is by working with your hands. Um, I don't know if you have any hobbies like working on cars or woodworking or drawing or painting. I wish I had a talent in any of those, but I don't. Making I appreciate music. it, but yeah. I, I play guitar a little bit. I'm not, uh -huh. I'm not that good, but I play guitar. And I'm, I, love, um, I love sports, though. I like yeah. anything, you know, um, with a ball, you know, playing basketball, soccer, football, ping pong, pickleball now I'm loving. So anything uh -huh. where I get to hold something and hit a racket, catch a ball, where it makes me have to focus in that moment if I want to succeed at that thing. Um, I also love salsa dancing. So it's like something yeah. interactive where it's listening to music and experiencing it. Yeah. I think the height of human experience is when these two things are working at the same time the dopamine circuits in the brain, and the here and now circuits. And that happens in sports, yeah. right? The here and now circuits are focused on your body and the oh. ball, what's happening right now. Dopamine circuits are thinking strategy. What's my opponent gonna do? What should I do next? Interesting. And I think that's, that's some of the intense pleasure of a nice competitive sport. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So how do we learn to master dopamine then so that it can help us succeed in everything we want? I think it's very much about being aware of what's going on. Okay. And so um, when I was writing this book, I got in the habit of asking myself, is this a dopamine moment or is this a here and now moment? Uh -huh. um, and if it was a dopamine moment, good. Think about the future, work hard, make something new, create. Think about possibilities, think about potentialities, things that don't exist. If it's a here and now moment though, spending time with my family, um, don't you know, be thinking about the future. Don't be thinking about the future. When you're with your kids or when you're with your partner or your friends, right? Right. So turn it off. Turn it off. What's be in the, the present What's moment. the best strategy you've learned to turn it off to be present? You know, because I hear a lot of stories about how parents are 
on, I don't have kids, but I've heard, that, heard this from parents that their their kids want their attention, but they're saying, you know, they're just looking at their phone still or they're distracted yeah. because of the addiction, I guess, or that dopamine wanting more of the thing that they don't have right now. So how can people turn it off when they're in those scenarios with friends, family, and activities? Yeah. So I think the first thing is to be uh, deliberate, okay. um, to say, okay, I'm going to spend the next hour with my kids, and that's not a time where I'm going to be on my phone. Mm-hmm. I'm going to leave my phone in the bedroom. Yeah. Um, and so, so then you don't have that temptation. And then I think listening is the best way to bring yourself into the present moment. Listening. Listening. How do people learn to listen better? It's not easy. <laughs> I, I think the first thing is to recognize that how hard it is. Yeah. And that a lot of times we're not good at listening. You're having a conversation with someone, a lot of times you're thinking about what you're going to say next exactly. rather than what the other person. And people who are very charismatic know how rare this is. And oftentimes charismatic people will be described as making you feel like you're the only person in the room. Right. Because they're in the present, present. moment. Yeah, yes, they're present with you. It's interesting. I, I grew up feeling very uneducated, not smart. Um, you know, just from school. I, I performed poorly in school. Uh huh. And I told myself a story that you know I'm never going to be smart enough. No one's ever going to be interested in me because I'm not a smart person. That's mm-hmm. what I told myself growing up. Mm-hmm. And then I heard a quote. Um, I believe it's by Roosevelt that says, "People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care." And I said, oh, maybe I have a chance if I just show that I care about people mm-hmm. and, and put energy and effort into listening and caring about their lives and their stories, maybe they'll want to hang out with me. So it was kind of like, a, uh, I don't know, just a strategy to find friends in high school. It was like, let me just pay attention to people and just focus and ask questions that I'm curious about and listen. Yeah. And I started doing that in business early on when I, when I had no skills on making money or starting a business. I had no idea what I was going to do. But in the business world, I would go to networking events and I would just ask people questions about themselves and I would never talk about myself ever. Huh. And at the end of these events, people were like, you're the most interesting person in the room. And I never said anything. I just asked questions and, and paid attention while everyone was being distracted and looking around the room. I just focused. And it served me well, you know, and it's probably one of the reasons why I wanted to do an interview show, just to be able to sit down and ask questions. Yeah. So you don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but if you can pay attention, then that can help you in a lot of ways. And how old were you when you came to that realization? It's like 16, probably, yeah. Takes, takes it, but, then, but then it was like one of my early 20s when I really started to practice it. Yeah. It can take people a lifetime to have yeah. that insight, though. Right. Uh, it's amazing to have that at such an early age. Yeah. I was like, I'll never be as smart as someone like you. You know, I'll never be able to do this research and dive in and be this, like, scientist of the brain or neuroscience or things like that. But if I can just put my effort and energy towards paying attention and listening to people and asking questions that open people's hearts and minds, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that will get them you know, grateful in that moment. And gratitude goes a long way for people. Yeah, so it sure does. That's, that was my strategy. I'm not going to be the smartest. I'm going to be the most caring. That was the goal. <laughs> That's great. That's great. And what's, what, what's interesting to me about that is that it, it arose out of hardship. Uh-huh. It, yeah. it arose because you suffered exactly. uh, feeling that you weren't smart enough. Absolutely. And we work so hard in life to avoid hardship. Yeah. And yet... That's often the most valuable thing we experience in life. Why is it so valuable to experience hardship? I think it's because that um, 
when things are going smoothly, we don't have to change. Um, and um, standing still in life is not good for us. Mm-hmm. We need to grow. You've seen, pe- you've seen middle-aged people who still behave like they're in college. They're, they're desperately hanging on to a point in their life that they felt was the best point for them. Right. And, and it, it's sad. It's very, very sad to see. We've got to keep growing. But we don't want to. Right, I, I'm. Per, you know, it's it's much easier to stay still and be comfortable. Yeah. yeah, it's very comfortable. So um, we need hardship to push us out of that comfort zone and make us grow. When I think back on the last, you know, I guess, my entire life, when I think about the most hard, the most difficult experiences that I've faced, and the lessons I learned from that, I I go back and think, man, I you know, I wish I wouldn't have experienced them in the moment, but I wouldn't take it back based on the lessons I've learned and how much I've grown from them. Yeah. I think we need to decide, are we gonna learn and develop and grow in these hardships? Because some of us don't. You know, we mm-hmm. something hard happens yeah. and we just stay stuck as opposed to break through. Yeah, Nietzsche said, uh, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. It's not true for everybody. You've gotta embrace that and, and you can't let yourself feel, feel crushed by adversity. You've got to overcome it, and then you'll be stronger. How do you overcome it, though? You know, I think you prepare yourself. I, I think you've got to prepare yourself um, by getting good at. You can't just say when the big thing happens, I'm going to rise to the occasion. Mm. You've got to focus on the little things, right? Um, like what? Um, like, like um, you know, you, you don't say, "Well, when I'm talking to this very important person who could change my life, I'm going to listen to what they're saying." No, listen to what everybody is saying. Mm-hmm. Listen to what the bus driver is saying, right? Uh, and then you get in the habit. Aristotle said um, that virtue is a habit, that you can't expect to do the right thing when the big thing happens unless you're in the habit of doing the right thing when the little things happen. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So listen, we all know life is full of yada yada, like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print. And I know you've dealt with yada yada before, like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all. Or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare, but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else. And yes, it is possible to outsmart yada yada, like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. 
When you get a new car or a new home, your first reaction might be to say things like, oh yeah, or I can't believe it, or booyah. But what you really want to say is the one thing that can get you the help you need. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm is there with the coverage you need for your car, your home, and even boats, motorcycles, RVs, and other things that matter to you. With a State Farm agent, you know someone is there to help you choose the coverage you need. With so many coverage options, it feels good knowing you can find what fits for you. And when you need ways to get help, State Farm gives you options there too. Too, in person or on the phone with your local agent or on statefarm.com where their award-winning app State Farm lets you do things your way. So when you need help protecting the things that matter most, remember to say, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So it's really about just being in integrity with yourself every single day and doing the best you can in every moment, not just when the big moments happen. It really is. I, I say to my students, um, if you want to do the right thing when the chips are down as a doctor, write good notes. Uh, you focus on the little things, mm -hmm. and the big things will take care of themselves. That's interesting. So how do we use dopamine for focus, motivation, creativity, and avoiding unhealthy addictions? I think that we will get the most out of dopamine by keeping it in balance with the here and now. Dopamine becomes our enemy when it becomes the end-all and be-all. Right? I've got to get a new wardrobe. I've got to get a new cell phone. I've got to get a new car. Um, but if we balance it, if we keep it in perspective, if we don't take it that seriously, if we learn how to laugh at ourselves for constantly wanting more, 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 while at the same time accepting it, you know, not yeah. trying to be saintly, that's, I think, keeping it in perspective is gotcha. what's going to be the best. And do you think people need to go through a, a dopamine detox? Dopamine detox is very controversial. Um, a, a lot of people say that that's just a fairy tale, Okay. <laughs> um, right? Because um, when you get hungry and you eat, you get a big, big release of dopamine. Uh, when you work hard and you accomplish something, you get a big release of dopamine. So what are you going to do during the detox? You're going to not eat. You're going to not work. You're going to not pl make plans right. to make yourself happy. You're just going to be miserable, bored, and stupid. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't really do that. You but can't really do that. Maybe there are certain things you could say, what are the things that I've been doing too much of? I'm on social media too much. I'm watching too much trash TV. I'm doing certain activities maybe that bring this constant feeling of dopamine, right? That I, aren't yeah. healthy. Right. We can, we can pay attention to things that we're squeezing too hard. Right. Right. Like if you're the kind of person who can enjoy a nice piece of fruit and move on, Okay, you don't need to eliminate that. But if you're the kind of person who eats a candy bar and then eats two, three, four, five, you should eliminate that at least for a while. Gotcha. And that, you know, so maybe we might say an unhealthy dopamine yes, detox. Yes, un unhealthy dopamine detox. Yeah. Where does dopamine and addiction come into play? And what would you say is kind of the root of all addictions? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about chemical addictions uh, because those are, the, those are the most straightforward. Um, so there, there are dopamine circuits in your brain, uh, and there's different ones, and, and, and I'd love it if we had a chance to talk about the different sure ones. Sure, yeah. But um, uh, the one we think about with addictions um, is technically called the mesolimbic circuit. We call it the desire circuit, which okay. is a little bit more descriptive. Yeah. Uh, the desire circuit gives you reward. Okay. So the desire circuit goes off. Is this in the limbic part of the brain? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the... The reptilian part gotcha. of the brain. Okay, cool. So it's yeah. kind of in the center, in the middle mass, right? Yeah. Yep, that's right. Not on the top, on the mushroom top. It's more in the middle. Deep. It's yeah. deep. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is the desire circuit of the brain. Yeah. We could also call it the reward circuit, mm -hmm. right? Eat when you're hungry. You get a pat on the back when you do a good job. You get an award. All of these things uh, promote your evolutionary success. Really? Yeah. So we, we work to um, stimulate our dopamine reward center. Now, chemicals like cocaine and alcohol and nicotine, they artificially stimulate this this center. And some of them can, can hit it like a nuclear weapon and give it a stronger blast than any natural behavior can do. Now, a lot of times we make decisions in life based on what's going to give us more dopamine. So for example, um, should I go to work today or should I go see a movie? Well, I'm going to go to work because if I see a movie, that's going to have a really negative effect on my future, Sure. right? And, and that feels rational. Now, when drugs start giving these chemical blasts of dopamine to the limbic system, it starts to feel rational to do drugs instead of other things. And so when you see some poor guy out on the street and he's lost his job, his house, his family, his health for his drug, mm. you say, my God, what on earth is making him do that? That's crazy. But from the inside, it appears perfectly rational. He's choosing the thing that gives him the biggest dopamine. And in the absence of drugs, that's a strategy that usually works. So what I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, people that are addicted to some type of drug, mm -hmm. they make it logical in their mind mm -hmm. that this is a logical thing to do because it's making me feel a certain thing. Is right. that right? Right. It's making me feel successful. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. By yeah. like alcoholism, smoking, cigarettes, weed, cocaine, it, like... When they're high. When they're gotcha. high. They're Afterwards, they're high. of the world. Right. Right. Uh, you know, nothing can touch me. Gotcha. Uh, I'm Superman. I'm so great. You, you see people on cocaine and sure. everyone hates them because they're so arrogant and obnoxious and horrible. But in the moment, they feel like they invincible. Feel like, yep, that's right. What happens after the moment? After the the high. Yeah. Is well, there a, a shame, a guilt, a... Yeah, yeah. The brain takes revenge. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, um, you've, you've, you've not been stimulating dopamine naturally. You've been, you've been um, basically taking a whip to the brain and forcing it to deliver that dopamine, and, and you exhaust its stores. Really? And so when you come down, you're dopamine deprived, and that's a horrible feeling. What happens when you're dopamine deprived? Let me give you a sense of how it feels. And this is just a little tiny trivial example. Um, every morning you go to the bakery and you get a cup of coffee and a croissant, okay? And that's your habit. In the beginning, it gave you dopamine, uh, right? Because it was new. But only novelty can give you dopamine. After a while, it becomes the same old, same old. All right, so you're standing in line for your croissant and your coffee. Suddenly your phone rings. And someone's like, drop whatever you're doing and get over here right now. And you get no croissant and coffee that day. Uh, in the brain, dopamine is shutting down and it's making you feel resentful and deprived. But you didn't get what you wanted. Yep, what you expected. What you expected. Interesting. Yeah. So that's how it feels to have a dopamine deficiency. You feel resentful and deprived. How can you, I guess, navigate it then? So you do something, maybe you have a routine, but then you mix it up every now and then, so you're not yeah. expecting something all the time. Mm -hmm. And the novelty, you guys, brings you dopamine of something new or something different right. or mixing it up. So you may say, I'm not going to have that croissant and coffee for a month. 
And then when I go back to it, oh my God. It feel amazing, right? Yeah. That's right. So delayed gratification. Is that, how does that play into dopamine? Delaying. Yeah. Like the marshmallow test. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it, it, it stimulates it because you're keeping the thing you want in the future. It's like the advice that mothers used to give their daughters in the past. Don't have sex until after marriage because uh, the guy's going to lose interest. Right. Right. Where if you say, hey, you got to wait, that's going to, that's delayed gratification. That's going to keep dopamine expecting, anticipating, exciting. Um, so yeah, delayed gratification is a good way to boost up dopamine. Really? Yeah. So is it better to, let's say I want a cookie, right? And mm-hmm. I say, you know what? I'm going to wait a month <laughs> until I have a cookie or yeah. a candy bar or a cake or whatever. Yeah. I'm going to wait a month. And I'm going to think about it. I'm going to imagine it. I'm going to, you know, think of the taste of this cookie. But the only way for me to get this cookie is if I work out five days a week for a month. Let's mm-hmm. say I, I make this game up. Yeah. What is that going to do for myself as opposed to I'm going to have a cookie every day? Yeah. Whether I work out every day or don't work out every day versus if I do this thing five days a week for a month, then I get a cookie. Am I going to be happier during that entire month or less happy with the go for the month, then you get the cookie versus I get a cookie every day. Right, right. Happy's a, happy can mean different things, right? Uh, so for example, if I say um, I'm, happy, um, I'm happy that I'm going to get a new iPhone, it's a different feeling than saying I'm happy because I just got this new iPhone. Those are two very, very different things. What's the difference between the levels of happiness of I'm going to get something versus I just got it? Yeah. So when you are happy about something that's going to happen, it makes you feel excited, energized. Maybe it makes you feel strong and powerful and confident. Like you know it's coming. Yeah. Okay. When you're happy because you have something, it makes you feel satisfied and fulfilled. Um, and, And it's like, ah. Mm. You, and those are very different feelings. Sure. Some people like one more than the other. You know, others like the other. Where? How much dopamine comes in either form? With the second, there is zero dopamine. It turns off. Once you get something, once you get an award, once you get the cookie, once you buy something, within minutes, it dopamine turns off. Turns off. Because you already yeah. have it now. Because now you. Because now it's, it's in the in peri- your, per- interesting. Peri-personal. And dopamine doesn't function in very personal. Really. And so for yeah. some people, that's a moment of disappointment. Um, it's so interesting to say this because most of my young adult life, let's say, for years, I would spend ten or fifteen years with a goal. In sports, I was like, I'm going to be an all-American athlete. I said this when I was five years old, uh, and uh, I remember, and I was a two-sport all-American. I said I was going to be a professional athlete, all these different things. And I remember when I, the first time I became an All-American athlete, there was so much joy, like, and anticipation getting, like, before it actually happened, right? And the buildup and the training and the, and the hard work and the failures and all these different things. And then my name got called for being in the top eight in the country in the decathlon. Wow. And I remember feeling, like, so, like, excited and happy for a moment. And then maybe 10, 20 minutes later, I was really sad, depressed, angry, kind of moody. I was kind of moody and and my family was there. It was supposed to be the celebration. We were having dinner and I was kind of like moody. I didn't want to be around anyone. Almost as if you were coming off cocaine. Maybe, I've never been on cocaine, but yeah, maybe that's how it (laughs) felt. That's what, yeah, people look like. It was weird. And I was like, kind of like, didn't want to be around anyone. 
Wow. How did that, you know, so. Dopamine crash. Is that what it is? Yeah. You're having a dopamine crash. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. But I wonder if it's because I wasn't really celebrating the moments in between, like enough. Mm-hmm. It was more like, okay, I had to keep pushing until I hit this goal. Mm-hmm. And when I have it, then I'll be satisfied, but I wasn't satisfied. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I have a more of approach where I'm like, I'm gonna enjoy and celebrate every day the best way I can. Yeah. And appreciate every day. All the ups and downs and everything that comes in between and find appreciation for my health and my relationships and the work that I'm doing even if it's not the biggest successful day. And I feel much more balanced in that approach. I'm not sure if that's something you talk about, but. Well, I, I think it's another example of you You pay attention to the little things yeah, yeah. and the big things take care of themselves. Absolutely. You know, just related to your decathlon story, um, I was once giving a talk and there was an artist in the audience and he told me the most miserable times of his life are when he finishes a piece of art. Oh my goodness, really? <laughs> yeah. When yeah. he finishes it, he's like, now he's miserable. Now he's miserable because, um, and and when you know, I, I had so much fun writing this book. Mm. And when I finished the book, it was a real sense of loss. Really? Yeah, because that part of my life was over. Because I was done. Yeah. So what do we do when we accomplish something? When we achieve? When we create? When we ship? When we launch? When we build? When we post? You know, how do we not have this dopamine uh, depression? You know. That's such a dopaminergic question. (laughs) (laughs) The correct answer is you just experience whatever happens in the present moment. Mm. So if you finish a work of art and you're miserable, be miserable because that's what life is about. Life is not about always being on the top of the world. Um, In order to enjoy the good moments, you have to suffer through the bad moments Man. and live those live those suffering bad moments. That's part of life. I think it's also what's worked for me is to have, and maybe there's some psychological term behind this, but it's having a meaningful mission for my life where it doesn't matter if I'm accomplishing something, my mission is to be of service. Mm-hmm. And whether that's just saying hi to someone and being of service in the moment, or doing it in a grander way of reaching millions of people in a day with a piece of content. My mission is to be of service and to be as joyful as possible. Yeah. And and I can do that at all stages. You know, it's like I don't have to be accomplishing the biggest things in order to be living that mission. And yeah. that helps me kind of manage those emotional ups and downs, I think. I think that's so insightful. We talk about what can we do to be happy, right? But we forget that pursuing happiness is really not the best way to get happiness. Really? Pursuing meaning, you pursue meaning and happiness will just come. Yeah. Yeah. What's the meaning for you? What's your mission or meaningful mission? Yeah, so it changes a lot, you you know? Um, And we were talking about the unconscious mind earlier. um, And I think that that's where your mission comes from. Uh, a lot of people say, well, I want to be this kind of person. I want to be the kind of person who um, cares about the environment or cares about poverty or, or that. And so they go and they're like, gosh, I don't really but care, don't that care much. about it. <laughs> That's right. You got to find out what you really care for and then pursue that. How do you know what you really care for? It, it has to do with paying attention. Um, you know, you got to stop thinking about what do I wish I were like? And start paying attention to what am I really like? Okay, I'm miserable. You can ask yourself, what can I do not to be miserable? Or you can say, let me see what this misery feels like. Let me get to know this misery better because then I'll get to know myself better. When was the most miserable time in your life? 
I had, uh, I, I know about your childhood. Uh-huh. I had a tough childhood too. Yeah. Uh, my parents divorced when I was eight years old uh-huh. and they hated each other. Uh, and it's not they, fun growing up in a household with people that are arguing and screaming and not expressing love with one another. Yes. It's really challenging. And, and their hatred for one another was so intense, they had no bandwidth left over to care for their kids. Oh, man. And, and so we were just kind of out there fending for ourselves, trying to figure things out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. How long did it take you to, to heal those memories and wounds? Any day now it's going to happen. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But um, that's part of who I am. Yeah, of course. That's you part know? of what drives you to be of service and help people find healing and relief. That's right. And that's what you care about because of the pain. Yeah. And also, um, you know, I often think that um, I don't have a lot of self-confidence. I, it's hard for me to see myself as a good and worthy person. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so it drives me to do things like write books and, um, you know, study hard. Yeah. So I try to, um, I try to say, look, this is what my life is. And I'm going to be, I'm going to have gratitude for the good parts of it. I'm not going to say, oh, I wish it were something else. Are a lot of people making decisions based on survival strategy, like creating survival strategies? It sounds like you went into this where you're like, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to study extra hard. I'm going to yes. become on the board of this and the board of this and teach here and write these books and learn more and more to try to serve to find that worthiness and, and I guess self-confidence. And same thing for me in a different approach. I was like, I'm gonna care about everyone in the world, you know? Cause no one, I felt like no one cared about me. So yeah. it's like, yeah. I gotta find a strategy. Yeah. And I feel like I've gone beyond that now where I've really loved myself and care for myself and healed the inner child and I'm on that journey of healing. But it's, it's a journey, man. Yes, it is. It's a journey. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that, that we're not where we need to be, that, that we still have a lot of growing to do. Yeah. Um, and um, we, we've got to enjoy the ride. We can't always be focused on what's next. So how much, um, I mean, this is something you study. This is something you teach. This is something you our practitioner in, you have clients and patients in this. On a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most, one being the least, how much self-love and worthiness do you have for yourself? Those who can't do teach. (laughs) (laughs) So I work on it. When I started writing this book, I started meditating. As I was writing this book, I started meditating because I began to realize how dopaminergic I was and that dopamine I would, what? Uh, dopaminergic. Dopaminergic. Yeah. What yeah. does that mean? It's just an Allergic adjective. to dopamine? Or? No, no, no. <laughs> uh, it means very focused on dopamine. Okay. That, um, the, future, the, future, the, future, the future, the future, the future, the future. Not the now. Yes. So meditation, breathing strategies bring you back into now. Right, right. Um, and what happens to people that are only focused on the future? I, I think that they're very unhappy mm-hmm. um, because you can't be satisfied. Because as, if you're satisfied, it comes to a screeching halt. So you, right? And, and your mind is always somewhere else. And, and so, um, you know, sometimes I'm walking down the street to work and I just notice what a beautiful world it is. You know, the birds are singing. I love that. I'm smelling flowers in the air. Good for you. It's good practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're always focused on the future, you never get that. Yes. And, and, and I think that one of the things I realized is that reality, and reality only exists in the present, 
right? The future is always unreal. Reality is a million times richer than anything that we can imagine. Wow. And so if you're always thinking about what might be in the future, you're living in this poor, thin, pale world. Whereas if you're in the richness of reality, it's a much nicer place to live. Wow. So reality is a beautiful place. The future, the imagination, can seem like a beautiful place in our mind. Yeah. Imagining something, a world, an experience, an environment that we don't have yet that might improve the quality of our current reality. Is yes. that right though? So there's a beauty of thinking creativity. I think Einstein talked about like imagination is one of the most powerful things a human can do or whatever. Yeah. So imagining something greater than where you're suffering or where maybe you're not as fulfilled or happy. Yeah. So it's, it's a kind of sounds like a dance. I don't know about you, but when around 3 p.m. hits, I find myself craving the right refreshment to get me through that mid-afternoon slump. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea is full-flavored sweet tea, but without the sugar and the calories. It might take several bottles for you to believe that a delicious sweet tea can really have zero sugar and zero calories. But you know what they say, life is full of surprises. Or in this case, full of flavor. New Pure Leaf Zero Sugar Sweet Iced Tea. Try it to believe it. For 20% off your next 12 pack head to amazon and use promo code 20 pure leaf that's promo code 20 p-u-r-e-l-e-a-f for 20 percent off when you want the best you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead like when you're trying to buy tickets for the best seat at your favorite team's big game or when you're hiring for your business and you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. With ZipRecruiter, you can find qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com greatness. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I believe finding the right team member is one of the most important steps in setting up my company for success. We like to ensure our new hires will be a good fit before they're even on the team. So I am grateful that I have ZipRecruiter's help when we want to grow the team fast. Amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash greatness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. It is. Because if you were unworthy and didn't love yourself and were growing up scared in this environment, you don't want to be in that environment anymore. Right. There's a reality that's, right. that's not helpful. And that, that taught me to be somewhere else. Exactly. Not so, a healthy habit to acquire. But it helps you get out of that current state Help of pain yeah, and you're suffering. Right. You're so right. there's a, it sounds like a dance, right? It's a dance. You got to go back and forth. You can't forth. just say, I'm going to enjoy like my parents like screaming at each other and being like feeling worthless. Right. You don't want to just enjoy that, do you? Right, right, right. It's a dance, it's a balance. Now, some people choose, uh, for example, like a Tibetan monk, mm -hmm. right? They're gonna say no dopamine. They're gonna choose to live their entire life being having gratitude for the present moment. Absolutely. Um, and th there, there are ways of putting people in a brain scanner and telling how happy they are. Uh -huh. And Tibetan monks score highest on that score than anybody else. On happiness. On happiness. Because they're just grateful in the moment for everything, right? Yeah, yeah, they are. 
Um, tough, tough path for Westerners to follow. We, we, we have <laughs> we a different more. destiny. We yeah. want more. We want more. And we want to be like Einstein. We want to create things that never existed before. And, and there's a real nobility in that. The Tibetan monks have their own nobility. But there's also nobility in creation, yes. which, which they don't engage in. And in evolution and building and evolving, yes. Yeah. So scale one to ten, where are you? <laughs> yeah. So if one is the Tibetan monk and ten is so the work, well, if ten is like the happiest, oh, the happiest, yeah, yeah. The happiest, one is the, the most. Yeah, I'd say I'm about a six, seven, okay. maybe on okay. a good day. Yeah, that's yeah. good. How about you? I feel like I'm a eight, nine. Oh, nice. But I, nice. I really practice, especially with my girlfriend, like waking up and literally just being like, I'm so grateful for you. Uh, I'm uh -huh. grateful for this moment. I'm grateful for waking up. I'm grateful for my body, and then I do things that bring me more gratitude for the actions I'm taking. So this morning I woke up early, I did a workout, and I'm like, man, I'm so grateful for like taking this action, because I know it's gonna help my future self. So it's kind of like being, being present, but also I'll do something weird with my mind where I imagine myself years in the future next to me, it's kind of weird, and saying like, Thank you for taking care of my future. Mm. Thank you for, now we're gonna have a better, healthier existence because of this hour exercise. It's a form of love. It's like loving myself from the future to now. Yes. Which kind of sounds weird. I don't know what psychologically what that's called anything, but it's, it's future casting. It's like appreciating myself in the future for what I'm doing now. So interesting. It's melding the future and the present. Yes. Yeah. But it's, so it's thinking about the future but just saying, oh, I'm so grateful for what I'm doing in this moment and appreciating the moment. Yeah. So I think my girlfriend does a great job of it, of, of bringing presence also. I can be thinking about what I want to create for my business nonstop all day yeah. if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. I can go home at night and I can just keep working. But with her, it's like she, you know, I want to say demands it, but she is a, a force of presence that requires me to be present with her. She'll just come sit right in front of me and put her face in front of me. You know, it's like, so I like have to, you know, okay, let me just, let's talk. Excuse you know? me, I exist. Yeah, well, it's, well, it's not that I'm not, uh, I'm avoiding her or something, but she just comes in and she'll sit next to me or she'll just come and hug me. And it's just like, okay, I'm going to be present with her for however long we're going to be present for. And I think that's a helpful thing for people to be in relationships with other human beings where they see people, where they are required to be present. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's a beautiful gift. And by taking that time away from your work, it probably actually makes you get more work done. Absolutely. That's the thing I struggle with my patients. Uh, a lot of my patients are, are, are constantly working, 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 and they're terrified mm. that if they take the slightest breath, the house of cards will come tumbling down. But I say to them, if you take time off, you're actually going to get more work done. I believe it. Yeah. I was interviewing... Um, this, this uh, pastor, Pastor Michael Todd, he runs a, a Christian church in the Midwest. And um, he said one of the best pieces of advice he got from one of his mentor pastors, who was kind of mentoring him as he was growing up in the, in the world of the church, said every year take one month off where you don't do any work. Uh -huh. There's no laptop, there's no emails, there's no nothing. It's all play, fun, family, you know, vacation, whatever it is. And it was like a month, that's so much time. Yeah. 
And he says, it's non-negotiable every year he's been doing this. And he says, I come back, I come up with the greatest ideas. Oh. And he's like, that's where I, I came up with the idea for my next book that was a New York Times bestseller from that space wow. in between yes. the work. Yes. And he's like, there's an urge to want to start working, but I just have to pause. And when I came back, then I had all this energy and creativity and, and focus to get it done faster. One of the things that requires is trust. You, you know, we spoke a lot about how we want to be in control of things. How do you make yourself enthusiastic? How do you make yourself interested? No, you have to trust. You take the month off and maybe it will be a complete waste of time. Right. Or maybe you'll come up with a New York Times bestselling book. Ooh. Right? How much time have you ever taken off since you started <laughs> your practice? Uh, have you taken a half day off yet? <laughs> I, I, I'll take long weekends. I like long weekends. That's but good. But I can't take off. It's hard for me to take off a full week. Really? I, I just don't know what to do with myself. You have kids? Yeah. How many kids do you have? I got two boys. Two boys. How yeah. old? Uh, they are now um, oof, 25 and 20. Wow. Okay, cool. Um, one of the best things I did for myself, this was probably four or five years ago, I, I came to a realization where I said, wow, for 15 years, every day I've had my phone, I've touched my phone. Uh-huh. Maybe not all day, but I've touched my phone for 15 years. This was probably four years ago or something, or five years ago. Uh-huh. Because I got my first cell phone in, in 2000, right? So it was like, maybe it was six years ago or whatever, seven years ago. But I was like, 15 years, I've touched my phone every day since 2000. So this must have been 2015. And I said, What's a challenge for me? What's something that seems like I could never do? Uh-huh. And I said, going away for a week and not having my phone with me. Wow. And so I made a commitment. I said, I'm going to go to, I went to Hawaii and um, by myself, left my phone and laptop at home. No electronics on me. I mean, it felt so uncomfortable the first like day and a half because first off, I forgot where my my rental car was so I went to every rental car place oh, and said did I get this here I didn't even have all the information uh -huh. I didn't have a GPS mm -hmm. in my phone yeah so I stop at gas stations asking for directions to hotels it felt like back in 1995 I remember those days. Right? yeah yeah and um, after the second day it felt like the most incredible surrender and peace I was like laying in the ocean not thinking about oh my phone is on the beach or I need to like check something and I almost didn't want to go back to having a phone. I want to do that. It was the greatest gift I gave myself. And so my challenge to you would be to find at least a week to do that for yourself. No I think Hawaii would be a good place exactly. to do it. Yeah. Leave your electronics at home. Yes. That would be very hard. But I, I could imagine a realization coming at some point during that week saying, I've been enslaved by this and Slave. I'm finally free. That's how I felt. Yeah. Freedom. Yeah. It was incredible. Okay, so you say you're at a six or a seven. What would it take for you, do you think, to get to an eight, nine, or 10? What is the, the thing, the unresolved stuff that you haven't faced that you feel like would support you in improving the quality of that inner yeah. peace or joy? Because the reason I ask, and the reason I challenge you, Daniel, is because I believe your work and your message and your mission is extremely valuable for humanity. And so I want you to be at an eight, nine, or 10 to be able to give more from that space of self-love and worthiness. Because I feel like you'll be able to serve at a higher level at that space. So that's why I'm challenging you. you 
and asking you this. Yeah, so um, I, one of the things I've been, I've been doing more is um, learning to say no. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So creating a boundary. Yeah, yeah. When I first started my career as a psychiatrist, um, I decided that I was going to say yes to everything. You have to when you're starting. You have to. You've got to build something. You've got to build. You've got to be the guy that people will go to and they know the job will get done. I'll show up here. I'll take on this project. I'll do whatever you need. Yes. Um, and, and, and that worked out really, really well. But then that became my habit. Um, and I started finding myself getting resentful. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was giving, 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 and I wasn't getting what I expected in return. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then I just started saying no. I won't do that. It's beautiful. And my happiness went up. <laughs> it went up a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the most powerful things. I think it took me the longest to learn that in intimate relationships mm. where I would um, choose, I don't blame anyone that I ever dated, but I would choose certain relationships and then I felt like I needed to say yes to make them happy or to do what they wanted for whatever it was. And I realized the things that I didn't want to say yes to. So it was never them, it was about me abandoning myself mm -hmm. and being in constant abandonment of my, my own self-love or what I really wanted. And so I think when I learned that lesson, it's been such a beautiful, peaceful environment inside in mm -hmm. that. And yeah. when I, I started doing that in business years ago as well, and I found like, wow, I have so much more freedom and peace from that. So I think that's a beautiful thing that you're doing. One of the things my wife said to me is that when you open your hand to let go of something, your hand is now able to get the next thing. Right. You know, and, and you can't you can't receive the next gift unless you're able to give up the last one. That's so true. Yeah. I was asking you before about this. You see uh, patients almost every day or a few every days day. a week? Every, every day. day, yeah. And what type of practice is it that people come to you for? What is the main thing that people come to you for? My expertise is psychopharmacology. That is using medications to treat psychiatric illnesses. Okay. Uh, and my specialty is uh, bipolar disorder. Really? Uh, depression uh, and depression as well. Where does depression and bipolar disorder stem from? What is the root cause? It's really biological. Really? Yeah. You know, in the old days, we would look at a person's past and that has an effect um, how healthy uh, the environment they grew up in is going to determine mm -hmm. their, uh, their strength to recover. Um, but really, it's about a genetic vulnerability. Really? Yeah. But yeah. Don't, don't some people get in more depressed states, seasons of life, or if something traumatic happens, they might be in a depressed state, but other times they can be in a less depressed state? Well, one of the challenges that we face is separating normal emotional experiences in life from medical illnesses. Gotcha. You know, one of the, one of the challenges that psychiatry faces is that it's often not viewed as a medical specialty in the same way that cardiology or pulmonology is, right? Because it can't be seen, really, I guess, right? It's more in yeah, the mind. That's right. And also because the brain is so hideously complex. You know, the heart's a pump. I, I don't want to diss my cardiology uh, colleagues, but the heart's a pump. The brain is like a hundred trillion freaking cells. And yeah, we just had a brain surgeon on recently who's a neuroscientist as well. Uh -huh. He's done over a thousand brain surgeries. Wow. He was like this, he's like, you could cut out a piece of the brain where they think is, you know, 
can't remember exactly what he said, but it's called the analytical side of the brain. You could cut out a piece of it and the person can still be analytical because the brain can readjust yeah. and rework itself. It's like this, yeah, incredible thing. Yeah, and it's, it's complexity makes psychiatry a younger science yes. because we don't understand as much about our organ as our cardiologist colleagues do. Right. And so I, I think that in some ways we get less respect because we're mm -hmm. kind of, we're, we're at a much more primitive level. Yes. Um, but it's still medicine. It's still medicine. And we still approach it scientifically. And, and when the brain is broken, that's different than when people are going through difficult experiences in their life. Got you. And their brain is responding the way you would expect it to, to hard things. I asked you before, I said, what's been the biggest... Um I guess, challenge over the last year, what type of people have come to you in the last year? And you said, um, what did you say specifically? People who might have an extreme mental illness versus people who are going through extreme adverse challenges. Yes, so you know, all of my patients are being treated for a mental illness. And um, you know, usually once they get better, it holds and they stay better, but not always. So they're coming in and they're saying, gosh, I'm, mm. I'm feeling like I did before I saw you. Did the treatment you gave me stop working? Or is it because I'm stressed out and upset, just like all my friends who don't have mental illnesses? Gotcha. We have to figure that one so out. So how do you determine if someone is needs an actual medication or if they need a you know, heal a wound that they haven't healed, or they need to heal a trauma, or they need to get out of a, a toxic relationship, or they need to stop watching the news, or they need eight hours of sleep, or you know, eating healthier foods, or all the things lifestyle-wise that support uh, a better feeling, a better mood. Yes. I, I just ask them, uh, how are the people at work doing? About the same as you? Yeah. And if they say, yeah, everyone's the same as me, I'm like, healthy lifestyle. Uh, but if they say, no, you know, everyone's pretty much okay, and I can't drag myself out of bed in the morning because of this feeling of dread, I say, let's take another look at your medications. Interesting. Is there a way to heal depression without medication? There is. Mild to moderate depression can be healed without medication. Severe depression, though, is gonna need medication. Really? Yeah. There's no way to get out of severe depression from extreme lifestyle shifts or, again, psychologically going back into childhood wounds and starting the healing journey and creating self-love inside and finding meaning and all these different things? Doctors never say never. Okay. Right, because the human... I like that. I'm the, glad you said the, that. Yeah, 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 the human body is... We play the odds. Medicine yes. is about statistics. It's okay. about rolling the dice for the best outcome. But if you've got severe depression and you're going to try and do it without medication, the odds are way against you. So you're saying it's much harder with severe depression where you're like, I can't get out of bed, I can't think, I can't move. Or it's hard or to... I'm suffering from a psychosis. I'm hearing voices telling mm. me I'm a horrible person. Depre severe depression's no joke. It, it's a real broken brain. People can have delusions. Their body uh, is riddled with disease. They can have the delusion, I'm responsible for all the evil in the world. It, it, it's not true, but they have it, this truth that's yeah. not a reality. Depression can be a fatal illness. Really? Um, yeah, it leads to suicide. So it's an illness to be taken very, very seriously. Right, so if it's extreme, then medication, you're saying, is the way to get out of the extreme to start saying, okay, now you have some more balance to start changing lifestyle stuff to see if that'll help you, right? And increase the mood or? You know, if somebody has that extreme of depression, it's generally a chronic illness. Gotcha. And that's not to say that lifestyle and other changes isn't gonna be incredibly helpful. Uh -huh. But, um, you know, let's, let's, let's think about diabetes. 
Um, sometimes people can uh, overcome diabetes with lifestyle changes. Right. Sometimes they can't. Right, right. If they need medication, lifestyle changes will still be enormously helpful. Sure, sure. But we don't want to fall into the stigma of saying, well, mental illnesses don't count. Yeah, we're going to give the diabetic patient medication, but the guy with depression, he's going to have to tough it out. Sure, sure. Right? Well, yeah, there's a lot of cases now where Dr. Jason Fung is talking about, you know, reversing pre-diabetes or, or early stage type 2 diabetes are able to reverse it yeah. through fasting, through eliminating certain foods and, and lifestyle changes. Um, but the farther along it is, it's obviously much harder to reverse without medic having medication or something like that. So right. that's interesting. Now, I'm curious about this. I'm forgetting the, the, the doctor I had on, the name of him. I'll have to come back and think about it. But I'd asked him about different stages of his life. He's probably in his 70s now. I'm forgetting his name. And he, there were different stages in his life where he said he was at lower points, more depressed type states, right? Maybe mm -hmm. not full depression, but depressed states. And lower points of enthusiasm, lower points of creativity and wanting to, you know, show up and work every day, mm -hmm. right? And things like that. Mm -hmm gaining weight, all these different things. And I said, what changed? And he said, love. Mm. He said, meeting someone yeah. and feeling powerful love changed the way I thought, changed the way I felt, changed the way I saw the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How powerful is love when it comes to mental illness, depression, overwhelm, stress? How powerful is the feeling of love, feeling loved by another human being or fully loving yourself, mm -hmm. reparenting yourself psychologically, yeah, and giving yourself the love that you never had as a child, or or bonding with someone chemically um, through that feeling of love. How can that shift your depression, your states, and your desire to want to give and create more in the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that. Uh, love involving another person is probably the single most powerful thing there is. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, personally, you know, when I met my wife, that that was more healing than anything I'd ever experienced really? before. Yeah, that completely changed me. Completely changed me as a person. Yeah. Wow. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And I've learned the hard way that constantly holding on to your emotions and repeatedly choosing to not talk about your feelings will only make you feel worse and worse. And up until about 10 or 11 years ago, I was afraid to talk about my trauma that I experienced. And I know we all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. But therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to fit your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lewis today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash L-E-W-I-S.
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Yeah. So do you think people that are depressed have love? Um, or are able to feel love? Maybe there's someone's loving them but they're not able to yeah. receive it. You know, again, I think we need to be very careful about um, distinguishing depression as a medical illness. Versus... Yeah, because it's so easy to fall into the... Um, into the habit of blaming people for their mental illness. Say, oh, if only you loved yourself more, you wouldn't be depressed. Of course, yeah, you know? of course. We don't say somebody with cancer, oh, you know, if of only course. You, right? I'm just curious how yeah. powerful if we learn to Let, receive yeah. and give and feel love. Let me give you the most powerful example I've come across. Share it with me. Um, and, and it's one of the most terrible mental illnesses there is. Narcissistic personality disorder. Oh, this has been a massive topic that people are covering. Is and, that right? And uh, we had a, a, a narcissistic uh, expert therapist come on and talk about it. Yeah. And um, I mean, it's got over a million views on our channel already from that alone. And I think so many people have been in narcissistic relationships yeah. where they face this like sucking of their soul out of someone else. I know I've experienced that. You have, wow. It's but terrible, I wasn't it? aware of it until after the fact, right? Until it's like you learn to heal your, your own self and it was yeah. just like, you're, you're not like, oh, I deserved that. It's crazy, yeah. it's crazy. And yeah. so, um, so tell me more about narcissism and love and, and yeah. where you're going with this. So um, for a psychiatrist, narcissism is just brutal. How many narcissists come into your practice? Um, when I was a resident, um, I was assigned a patient who had narcissism uh, and I worked with him for two years. And um, I did nothing for him. Uh, and I remember a dream I had once. I was trying to climb a wall of glass and there was nowhere for me to get a hold. And that's what it was like working with this, with this poor man. Oh, you're gonna bring me back to my past now, yeah. <laughs> there was, there was not enough, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get a hold and there was nothing I could do to help him change because everything was always other people's fault. And there's and, never responsibility, right? No. And this was nothing. not a bad man. I, I, I liked him. I felt sorry for him. He was miserable. But I couldn't. He, nothing was ever his fault. That is like the, the sign of a narcissist, right? Yeah. It's like one of the many signs. One of like, the many, many blame signs. Blame everyone and never take responsibility. I faced that in, in a couple of relationships. And so after two years of that, when a narcissist would come consult me, I, I would say, look, I can't, can't take your money. Yeah, it's so funny, this therapist that we had on who teaches about this and educates people on what to look for with narcissism, does a YouTube channel. She was like, it's rare that I'll even treat a narcissist because mm -hmm. they'll never wanna go to therapy. Yeah. They'll never, they only go because they're forced to go from their partner or something, mm -hmm. or they're, gonna, they're threatening a divorce and so they have to go. Mm -hmm. But it's like, they need to go almost every day for years in for order years. for them to say, you know what, I'm gonna see it differently, I'm gonna take responsibility. Yeah. And then they need to stay in it in order to get out of that. What, how do people manage that if they're in a relationship with a narcissist? Oh, I don't know. I, I think they gotta get out. 
That's I, the only I, solution, huh? I, that I can think of. I mean, I'm not an expert in narcissism. Yes. Um, I've never had any success. But I tell you something. So, so there's not very many. There's not very many therapists who can successfully treat narcissism. It takes a very special person to be able to do that. Ninety-nine percent of therapists will get nothing done. But there is something that does reliably help narcissists. What's that? Being in a genuine love relationship. That so actually not diminishes with, narcissism. So tell me, what do you mean by that? Not being in a relationship with them, but in being in a relationship with someone else. Uh, if they if they are in a relationship where they truly love the other person, it's not that they just see the other person as a source of narcissistic gratification. The other person is not just someone to be drained, that they truly love that person. But a narcissist would never do that, right? It, it happens. It happens. Really? Yeah. Psychiatry has been more pessimistic about personality disorders than we should be. And, and borderline personality disorder is another example. In the past, we've been very pessimistic. Now we're extremely optimistic. And we think, oh, borderline personality disorder, there's an enormous potential for improvement. I hope someday we'll get there with narcissism. But it, it, it's, it, it's more malleable than we thought. Really? Yeah. But, but not through treatment. It's through life. See, what's at the heart of narcissism is radical insecurity. Massive insecurity. Yeah. Huge insecurities. Right. Massive wounds. Right? Yeah. And they don't feel like, what, they, they don't love themselves. No, they don't. They feel that they are utterly unworthy. They might not be aware of it. It might be unconscious, but that's what it is, that they're utterly unworthy. And so there's this, there's this hole inside of them they're constantly trying to fill. And, and they fill it, you know, with other people. And that's why it's so horrible being with them because they're just sucking out of you trying to fill this hole. The thing is, though, that if something real actually happens, like they do have a real relationship, or uh, even graduating from college or, or getting a good job diminishes their narcissism mm. because suddenly they're not desperately empty. Interesting. But wouldn't it never feel enough? Like, well, I don't deserve this. I've got this great person in front of me, but I, I'm not worthy enough of deserving this. So I'm going to sabotage it. I'm going to suck. I'm going to blame them for everything still about how I feel. That's what I went through. It's not yeah. funny. Yeah. I'm not an expert in this. Yeah. And as I said, what I'm talking about are studies that look at statistics. Uh, I would agree with you, though. I think there's some narcissists that it's not going to work. What's the difference between a narcissist who is uh, feels like they don't deserve, they have a massive wound, versus someone who just feels unworthy, who's not a narcissist. Yeah. So, <laughs> like you know, me and you growing up. I know, I know, yeah. Who wants to suck the life out of people and blame everyone versus someone saying, I, I'm, I know I feel unworthy, I take responsible for these, I'm responsible for these things. Yeah. It's a question of where the pain goes. Uh. The narcissist puts the pain outward on others, right? The person... Because I think they're unconscious of their unworthiness. Mm -hmm. Person who is aware of their unworthiness, pain goes in. Wow. And, and people tend to like them because, you know, they're always trying to please others. They are, yeah, that was me. Yeah. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> trying to say yes to everything and then resenting it later. Yes. It was like, yeah. <laughs> That's fascinating. But, but those people tend to be more successful in life, right? The, the narcissists are kind of alone yeah. and miserable because nobody wants to be with them. Right, the guys who are trying to please people, well, they, they, they do good friends. things. <laughs> <laughs> they get taken care of, they get taken advantage of, yes. So what do you see for the future of the brain, dopamine, and 
creating happier, more fulfilling lives for ourselves. When it seems like, and the statistics are showing that life expectancy is actually dropping, at least in the USA over the last, I think, five to 10 years, it's actually dropping now, where um, access to foods and things that are unhealthy for the body Mm -hmm. are making us needing these addictions more and more, cigarettes, uh, whatever me, alcohol, plant medicine, all these things that people are doing to feel something. Yeah. Uh, social media, the phone, the addictions, all these different things. What do you see as the future of where we're going? And if someone truly wants to live a happier, more fulfilled life, what can they do in the face of the next decade of just distractions? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I don't think it's gonna get easier for anyone with the accessibility to addictions, things, Mm -hmm. access, the now gratification. Yeah. You know, think back to to our prehistoric ancestors. Can you imagine going out on a hunt for a woolly mammoth? How much fun that must have been. It'd be scary, fun, exciting, all these things. Yeah, like you're with your buddies, like the tribe. Y'all depend upon one another. Y'all got a role. It's life or death. You could come home dead. You know, you're going to bring home meat. I bet that we don't experience anything like that our whole life that was as much fun as that. Wow. Related to that, um, you know, like like everyone, I started out life um, poor, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, as a poor medical student. Um, And now, you know, I'm, I'm financially more comfortable. And there are things I miss about being poor. Isn't that interesting? Did, did, have you noticed I, that? I, I was sleeping on my sister's couch for a year and a half. Uh-huh. No money. Broke. Eating uh, mac and cheese and leftovers from her. Yeah. I didn't have a car, so I'm walking everywhere and just like living by, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks a month. Yeah. And there's something about that time that I'm like, God, it was so exciting to see like, what could I create from this space of nothing? Yeah. You're, you're strategizing. Yes. Little wins are huge. Huge. Oh, <laughs> someone said yes to meet with me. It was like all these yeah. things. So a, a, as, our, as our society progresses farther and farther away from scarcity, we lose those mm. opportunities to have these incredibly big wins that are going to change our life. Um, and, and so we, we overeat on junk food. We, we spend time with these trivial nonsense pleasures on our cell phones because the big things are no longer in our life. It's no longer about finding sources of food to survive. It, it's now about, you know, how, how many views am I going to get with my latest post? It's not the same thing. So what can we do over the next five, 10 years as these distractions are going to become more prevalent? We've got to think about meaning. We, we've got to think about what is meaningful. Um, so for me, you know, writing books has become so meaningful. And, and it's nice and hard. Uh, and sometimes it makes me miserable, which is good. Um, you, you've got to find something that's hard, that, that will involve failure, because that's how hard it is. Um, you, you, can't, you can't choose an easy life. Really? Yeah. What happens if we choose an easy life? We become miserable. We become miserable, bored, fat, sick, diabetic, um, all of those terrible things. Do you have a chapter or a place in here that talks about meaning and finding meaning? It's my next book. That's the next book. That's the next book, yeah. What is that one about, the unconscious mind? It's about the unconscious mind, yeah. And um, What is the unconscious mind versus the conscious mind? 
a lot of people have seen these these pictures of the mind uh, as an iceberg, right? Where there's this little teeny part above the surface and the huge mass is below the surface. Mm -hmm. That's the unconscious mind. The unconscious mind is responsible for everything that goes on inside our heads that we don't have control over. Emotions, excitement, enthusiasm, interest. Most people don't think about this. You don't control what you're interested in, you know? How do you, I mean, really? Do you, somebody like football? Okay. Uh, I personally don't like football. There's right. nothing I can, well, I kind of do, but not that much. But there's <laughs> nothing I can do to make myself passionate about here's, football. Here's the thing. I'm going to challenge you on this and tell me if I'm wrong. I never liked soccer. I played uh, it growing up and then I stopped playing it when I was a, a sophomore in high school when I started playing football. Um, and then I was like, I never want to watch soccer. The only time I was interested in soccer was during the World Cup when I was like, okay, I can get behind everyone going out and like watching game and supporting the USA, right? But I never wanted to watch until a few years ago. I was just telling uh, one of our producers here, Mike, that I I went to a couple LAFC games, their LA football club soccer uh -huh. team, right? Yeah. And I was like, this is incredible. The energy, the experience. I got to know the players and I was like, became interested in the sport of soccer. And I was like, I want to go to more games. Yeah. So how does that, like, what does that mean then? If I'm not interested, but then I become interested in something. Right. So we talked about, um, we talked about this pastor who took a month uh -huh, off, uh -huh. and boom, the idea hit him. Yes. That came from his unconscious mind. He didn't dig it up, right? Right. It came to him. You went to the soccer game, and you were given a gift. Uh -huh. You were given the gift of excitement. Yes. Uh, you didn't work for that. exciting, yeah. Right, that, that was a gift for your unconscious mind. And, and that's why trust is so important, that we have to trust that these gifts will come. Mm. If we try to squeeze our unconscious mind and force it to give us things, it's gonna rebel. Uh, we, we've gotta kinda go through saying, look, I'm not, I've got a co-pilot, or, or maybe I'm the pilot, maybe the other guys, maybe I'm the co-pilot, maybe the other guy's the pilot and in charge. Mm. But it, 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 it's, it's a realization that you cannot control everything that you have to be open to gifts that come from the unconscious mind. So it's kind of like being curious about life. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna try this thing, I'm gonna check this out and see how it makes me feel. Yeah, yeah, can I tell the story I wanted to Bring tell? It, yes. So um, so I did this TEDx talk, right? Yes. And it's a big deal. Yeah, And I practiced four years that, ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah I practiced that every day for a month. That's great, great speech. Thank you, thank you. Every day for a month? Every single day, well, five days a week. Uh, when I went to work, uh, first thing I did, first thing in the morning, is I ran through that speech. Wow. All right, so I get there, we do a dress rehearsal, uh -huh. get up there, and I'm giving my speech, I draw a blank halfway uh -huh. through. Nothing, I, I'm sweating. Okay? Dress rehearsal. Dress rehearsal, I got nothing. And I'm, I'm terrified, and, 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 and there's a dinner that evening, and I skip the dinner, I go back to my hotel room, and I'm memorizing, memorizing, so now, it's the day of the thing, and um, I'm about to go out, and I realize, I say, look, I didn't shirk, I wasn't lazy, I did everything I could, and it wasn't enough. Wow. And so I said to my unconscious mind, we're all in this together, be a pal and help me out. <laughs> you know, I acknowledged that mm. I didn't have control. Ah. And, and I was happy with how it went. My unconscious mind came through for yeah, me. That was great. But it came through for me as a friend, not as a servant. I didn't order it, I asked it. So what happens to people who are extremely controlling in their life? 
versus yeah. people that are more yeah. in surrender. Yeah, those controlling people don't do well. Really? And a lot of times, you know, the unconscious mind has a sense of humor. Um, you know you know about the Freudian slip, right? Yes. A lot of times the Freudian slip will reveal a truth that you were trying to hide, but the unconscious mind says, tough luck. Uh, you said this, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, people are always trying to be in control. The unconscious mind is constantly sabotaging them. So the unconscious mind is in control? It, 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 we share control. We share gotcha. control, and we need we, we need like to two, work as a partnership. Pilots. Yeah, okay. it's a partnership. And, and if you try if you try to be the um, the tyrant, um, like the people who are very much in control, the unconscious mind is going to mess with you. So, what is the conscious mind versus the unconscious mind? The conscious mind is what every thought I'm thinking or saying in this moment, or what does it mean really? Yeah, so the conscious mind um, tends to think rationally. You know, it it, it thinks logically. It, it figures things out. The unconscious mind, the conscious mind, is very much about words. And, and, and it's funny, you know, uh, the Greek word for words is logos. That's where we get logic from. So words and logic are very much connected. Mm. The unconscious mind doesn't use words; it uses feelings. Um, it, it's about emotions. It's about a gut feeling. Um, and, and people who have a good relationship with their unconscious mind, they rely a lot on their gut feeling. So they'll see someone and they'll just have this gut feeling and they'll trust it. Uh, and that's their unconscious mind delivering them information. Really? Yeah. Because what does the conscious mind try to do in every situation? Well, let, let me give you an example. Think about the last time you said, let me sleep on that, mm -hmm. right? Uh, when you say, let me sleep on that, that's an acknowledgement that your conscious mind can't work its way through the problem. Or it might react, or, or, or the unconscious mind might react if I You, you need respond. your unconscious mind. Okay. You know? Um, so, for example, think about um, making the decision about where to go to college. There are too many variables for the conscious, right? So you visit all the different places, and at some point you go, this is the right place for me. And, and you don't know why. There's something within your unconscious mind that just has a feeling. Yeah. So where is the conscious and the unconscious mind? Like physically? Where is it? Yeah. It's, it's embedded in the brain circuits of the brain. Yeah. But the mind is not in the brain. Is that right? Where is the mind? It's like, yeah. is it in the body? Is it around the body? Is it inside yeah. the brain? Where in the brain is the mind? Right, right. So, um, right. <laughs> So as a scientist, uh, I'm going to say uh, that the mind is simply the activity of atoms and molecules in the brain. Interesting. Because that's all a scientist can say, right? Um, as a human being, I don't believe that. Sure, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? But, but that's metaphysics. Right. That's beyond what we can measure and touch mm. and bang on and experiment on. That's metaphysics, and scientists shouldn't talk about metaphysics. So there's physics within the body, right? There's yeah. metaphysics, which is beyond. What's quantum yeah. physics? Physics. Okay. Physics. It's, it's straight up physics. So, so, so the, the, everything in the universe is made up of two things, bosons and fermions. Okay. Okay. What are these things called quarks? Quarks? Those are fermions. Okay. Yeah. Fermions are what make up matter. So quarks are fermions. Quarks, Electrons yeah. are fermions. Uh, bosons, Atoms are fermions. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Protons, well, they're made up, yeah. Uh, bosons are energy. So uh, photons, which carry light and radio waves, those are bosons, okay? So, so we got bosons and fermions. Anything that's not bosons and fermions, like souls uh -huh. and mind 
and divinities, uh, that's metaphysical. And consciousness, right? I don't know. That's not part of photons and these other things. I don't know. Right. So I it's don't something know. else that's not seen. Maybe. That's not measurable. Maybe, I mean, materialists. Uh, um, um, Crick, I can't remember his first name, co-discoverer of the uh, structure of DNA. Francis Crick. Okay. Watson and Crick discovered the big thing. Anyways, he's a strict materialist. He does not believe anything beyond bosons and fermions. And he wrote this book called The Astonishing Hypothesis. And he said, the astonishing hypothesis is that you, your memories, your feelings, your hopes, and your dreams are nothing more than a vast assembly of neurons made up of molecules and atoms. Really? As uh, Lewis Karras' Alice might say, you're nothing but a pack of neurons. So where does the soul, the mind... A, a, a fair number of scientists, especially neuroscientists, are strict materialists. Interesting. And they will not admit the existence of anything uh, beyond atoms and molecules. They say no soul, no mind. No soul, no mind. No soul, no mind. What's your belief? I believe in souls and minds. And where do you, I guess, if you're going away from the scientist's point of view, where would you say yeah. the mind is? Well, I, I think that once once we move away from there, we don't we don't need to talk about space anymore. Gotcha. I don't think the mind would be localized. It could be everywhere. It could, it could be, be anywhere, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Interesting. Yeah, it, does, it may not make so much sense to talk about it as being in, at a particular location. Right. You know, like like it, it meant in the old days, I don't know if this was like the 19th century, they did this crazy experiment in which they weighed someone right before they died and right after they died to find out how much the soul weighed, right? Because the soul would leave their body two ounces. The soul weighs two ounces. And, and, you know, nowadays we say, well, that's silly. So I I think that when we move away from science to faith, we're working in a completely different paradigm. That's crazy. Because there's so many times where people, you know, I'll call someone and they're saying, I was just thinking about you. Yeah. And why does that happen? You know, it's like, yeah. why are these connections beyond just the brain, you know, from the mind or the... Yeah. Now we're going beyond this book here, but... <laughs> it's interesting stuff. It's fascinating. Yeah. Is this anything that you tap into, you work on, or research, or is it more... Um, you, you know, um, it, it's pointless to research it. Um, really? People have tried, and they've tried many times because it is so fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, but it can't be captured. It cannot be captured. Um, and, and people who have faith would say, yeah, yeah, you, you know, you're not going to put God in a box. Right. Right? He's not going to. Can't explain it. Yeah. And, and plus, if there were a proof of God, there'd be no longer any faith. Right? right. Uh, because uh, you would be forced to believe in God. Like, you have no choice but to believe two plus two equals four. Right? In some ways, you're a slave. You can't choose. Uh-huh. If we could prove the existence of God, We'd be religious slaves because proof would eliminate choice. Mm. And so what religious people say is that assuming God exists, he would not create a universe in which you could prove him because he wants freedom for his creations. Mm. Do you prescribe faith to your patients? Do you say, do you see people with some faith or more faith as healthier, happier, you know, brains yeah. and, and mental, um, I don't know, capacities? Yeah. Well, you know, asking about spiritual beliefs is part of every standard psychiatric mm. evaluation. Um, 
Just like asking about diet and exercise, we ask about their right. spiritual beliefs. And what are the ones who are more depressed or seem to have more extreme mental illnesses on the spectrum of spiritual faith? Doesn't seem to be a connection between the two. Some of them might be strong faith, some might have no faith. Yeah. In general, extreme hardship does drive us to a more spiritual uh, orientation um, because it just forces us to look beyond the physical reality. Because right. you may not find a meaning or reason in the, the logical world, so you have to th- see beyond. Yeah. Now, to me, it makes sense that people with strong spiritual beliefs should be mentally healthier. But that has not been proven. Really? What, what, what has been proven is that people who attend regular religious services are happier and mentally stronger than those who don't. So it's the attending of a ritual, a That's what community. It, it's the a, community. It's the people. It's everything. It's feeling a yeah. sense of peace for an hour. You know, it's, it's the people. Because people who are spiritual all by themselves, which is a very important part of uh-huh. spirituality, they don't get the boost. The boost really? comes from the community. Really? Based yeah. on all the different patients you've had and the... I didn't the do data, these studies. I didn't do these studies, but smarter people than me did the studies. Wow. Yeah. So showing so, up to a place for an hour a week with a community in a spiritual practice, a yep. religious practice, tends to make people happier. Yep. So you would probably get the same uh, benefit from the Pickleball League. Right. Yeah. Just showing up once a week to like a community activity. Yeah, that's that's it. That or So it's disappointing. We haven't been able to prove that spirituality leads to better mental health. I think it does. It, it ought to, but we, we can't prove it. And, and I think that that's just the way it is with metaphysical stuff. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to the scientific method. Mm. What else do we need to know? Is there anything else you think we need to be sharing or talking about that would be valuable for people today? Um, on the, there's so on much. the molecule of more. You know, the one thing I was hoping we would get to Let's with, do it. was the question of love. Yes. Oh, yeah, because we were I talked about it, then I think I distracted you. Yeah. So you were saying narcissism, it's love. Well, I, I talked about falling in love can reduce narcissism. Okay, so tell but, me about um, love. You know, it, it, I want to talk about a mistake people make with love. Okay. Okay. Um, because there are two kinds of love. There's dopaminergic love and there's here and now love. And they're very, very different things. And people get the two confused and, and it can cause serious problems. So I want to make a distinction between Perfect. the two. All right. Dopaminergic love is the kind of love we experience when we talk about falling in love. It's a sort of insanity. It's a rush. It's a rush, yeah. Uh, Some people, and I agree with them, call it uh, the most intense, most pleasurable experience we can can have in life. But then there's a crash. Yeah, it comes to an end. There's there's a decline at some point. There's a decline. It doesn't have to be a crash. Okay. But there's always a decline. And with a decline, does it come a... expectation hangover or like uh yeah so dopaminergic love we might call it passionate love it only lasts for about a year or two all right and then it goes away and you're no longer when you're in love all you want is to be with the other person yes um you know they're a god or a goddess Mm. and, and they make your life perfect and you feel like you've never all you want is them when that comes to an end they lose their divinity and they revert back to normal human status wow and what a lot of people do is say, ah, I thought this was the one. They're not. I need to go find someone else because I'm no longer in love with that person. Right. And that's a mistake because what happens is that passionate love never, ever lasts. 
but it can evolve into something called companionate love. And that's the here and now love. Mm-hmm. We talked about how dopaminergic happiness is about excitement, enthusiasm, and, and that's what it feels like to be in love. Here and now happiness is about fulfillment, contentment, satisfaction, serenity. And that's here and now love. That's what passionate love can evolve into. And in some ways, it's better. Right. And so I think that, you know, our society, we uh, romanticize uh, passionate love, right? Movies are all about falling in love. You don't see couples who have been together 20 years and have this enormous level of comfort with one another, right? When you're in a companionate love relationship, you have this sense of trust. There, there's someone that you know will always have your back mm-hmm. no matter what. Your life is deeply entwined with theirs. And that is a wonderful, beautiful thing that I think our society doesn't appreciate enough. Yeah, they want more the rush. They want the feeling of falling in love. Yeah. And, and it always goes away. Yes. And so then they leave the relationship on, the next, on one. the next one to feel the next dopamine hit, I guess, right? Yeah, that's right. I had a patient who um, is a salesperson, top salesman in the country in his uh, company. Wow. Very dopaminergic. And um, he would just jump from one relationship to another. Uh, and he must have gone through hundreds of relationships. No way. And fun- one day he came to me with a big smile on his face. And he says, oh, I'm all better. I overcame my problem. I'm married. And I'm like, what? And, and there was this girl he was been dating for a couple of months. And he persuaded her to fly to Las Vegas and get married. And, and then I it said, probably ended in the next oh, year. Oh, it lasted another month. And then wow. it was over. No way. Yeah, because it was, it was just... There's no foundation. No foundation. He, he was solving in a dopaminergic way. He wasn't really growing his here and now circuits. Oh, man. So he got divorced. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's all about creating that foundation. Yeah. That's huge. And, and, and it's all about understanding that being in love is a temporary phenomenon and that it, it needs to evolve into something stronger and more long-lasting. Beautiful stuff. I'm loving this, Daniel. Uh, anything else we need to share, you think? Um, there's a lot more. There's a lot. Can I give you one more thing? Give me one more. All right. So we talked about the dopamine desire circuit. That's what makes you want stuff. That's what gives you pleasure. That's what drugs hit, sex, food, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. There's another circuit that involves the frontal lobes. What is that? The, the most recently evolved part of the brain, the dopamine control circuit. The dopamine desire circuit says, I want it now. The control circuit is also about the future because all dopamine is about the future, but it's about the longer term future. It's about planning. It's about working with abstract knowledge. So the desire circuit says, I want that donut. The control circuit says, you know what? We might be happier right now if we eat the donut, but 10 years from now, we'll be happier if we don't eat the donut. And what's that called again on the front? Uh, we call it the dopamine uh, control circuit. Okay. Technical name is the um, uh, is the uh, mesofrontal circuit or the mesocortical circuit. Okay, but that's not very. We call it the dopamine control circuit. Okay, cool. So you know when you talk about people who are very strongly dopamine, they can look very different. So someone who has a strong desire circuit can be hedonistic. They're going out to clubs, picking up girls, and drinking a lot of alcohol. The person with a strong control circuit is the workaholic mm. who's spending uh, all day and all night in the office making long-term plans for the future. Yeah. So, you know, most people think about dopamine, they think about the desire circuit, but dopamine is all, and that's the hot circuit. But there's a cold dopamine circuit 
that is passionless mm. and, and, and looks to the future and is merciless. Right. Yeah. Just and, works nonstop all day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's the other thing I wanted to throw. So in. where should we be in there? Well, we need that. Very, very powerful. We need both of them. Yeah. I mean, we need the control circuit to to moderate the desire circuit. Yes. Right. Um, we need so so it's a dance, and a there's dance. many many partners. Yes. And we need we need to be aware of all the different partners. Man, so much to understand and dive into. But the book shares a lot of this and more. The molecule of more: how a single chemical in your brain drives love, sex, and creativity, and will determine the fate of the human race. Powerful book. Uh, make sure you guys get a copy if you want to understand uh, this chemical in your brain more. Where can people follow you, Daniel? How can they connect with you and support you? You've got this book. Are you on social media as well? You know, I, I'm working on starting a YouTube channel, Ask the Psychiatrist, Ooh. in which I'm going to answer just questions That's to people great. about psychiatry. Um, not up yet, but um, okay. soon. Uh, DanielZLieberman.com if they want to be aware when it Perfect. goes live. DanielZLieberman.com for the book um, and also for the next book on the unconscious and conscious mind. Um, a couple final questions for you. This is a hypothetical question. Imagine it's your last day on earth many years away from now. You get to live as long as you want to live and you create everything you want to create in your life, right? You share with the world, you make books, you do everything you want to do. But for whatever reason, you've got to take all of your work with you, all of your written work, your audio, video, the content you've created. It's got to go somewhere else when you die. It's got to go with you or somewhere else, but we don't have access to it in this world. But you get to leave behind three things that you know to be true from your life experience, three lessons that you would share with the world. What would you say are those three truths for you? I would say that uh, the key to happiness is living in the present moment. That you are not alone inside your head and you better get to know your unconscious partner if you want to have a fulfilling life. And that life should not be about you. It should be about what you can do for other people. Mm, I love that. Service is a big one for me. That's on yeah. my list as well. Living yeah. a life of service. Um, I want to acknowledge you, Daniel, for your drive, for having the molecule of more inside of you to want to research, want to obsess, want to serve your, your patients to help people heal and improve and understand their conscious and unconscious mind, the dopamine circuit that's driving them, and for educating us on this information. It's really powerful and I think a lot of people are suffering because they don't understand how their mind and how their brain works for them specifically. So I really acknowledge you for being on this journey of service and creating in a powerful way. It's, it's beautiful. Thank you. Of course. Um, and I hope this next time I see you, well, hopefully you're up to a seven or eight on the worthiness and self-love journey. I'm gonna so, work on Yes, it. exactly. <laughs> um, my final question for you is, what's your definition of greatness? I think it is how much happiness you create in other people. Ooh, that's a good one. Daniel Lieberman, thank you, man. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and it inspired you on your journey towards greatness. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of today's show with all the important links. And also make sure to share this with a friend and subscribe over on Apple Podcasts as well. I really love hearing feedback from you guys. So share a review over on Apple and let me know what part of this episode resonated with you the most. And if no one's told you lately, I want to remind you that you are loved, you are worthy, and you matter. And now it's time to go out there and do something great. In the California Road Trip Republic, we believe you take adventure for a ride. Whether coastal cruising, mountain motoring, or redwood roaming, discover beauty around every turn. Your road trip can kick off from anywhere. Starting route. But it should always start at visitcalifornia.com. Then buckle up, crank those tunes, and discover why California is the ultimate playground. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.